chapter 12. I'm going to read one verse from Jonah, and then we will be looking at four verses, five verses in Matthew chapter 12. And so this is a bit of, this is a sermon I've had in mind. It's larger than Jonah, but it does um, build off of Jonah. And so um, goes back to Jonah 1.17, which we, we passed over quickly. And we'll be examining that a little bit in, in the context of this sermon. This is God's word. I'll read Jonah 1.17 and then uh, Matthew 12, starting in verse 38. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then moving to Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, this is Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the teaching of Jonah. And behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold... Something greater than Solomon is here. Please pray with me. Father, as we look towards your word, would you give us a hunger for it to to know and understand it and and to rejoice how you were working through it. I pray for clarity and for passion tonight that we would be more in love with Jesus because we see how the whole Bible speaks of him. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, when I was in seminary, uh, one of the big questions is, How do you relate the Old Testament to the New Testament, especially when you see how Jesus uses it and for himself? And that might still be a question today, Brian. I don't think it's it's gotten it hasn't been solved in in the near in 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 those few ages, uh, decades. It's only been a decade, but um, entire lives have been spent working on this question. How do you understand the Old Testament in light of the way the New Testament uses it? But this is not just an academic question. If you're a Christian, the the Old Testament is is three quarters of your Bible. If if God was writing this letter to his people, three out of every four words would be in the Old Testament. It's yours. But sometimes it's strange. Someone said that the the Old Testament seems like Bartlett's book of quotations poorly organized, right? There's, there's these nice little snippets that we go in and, and, and view, and um, I'm not, by the way, prescribing that view. But, you know, sometimes you know, there's these nice little snippets that we dig in, and these, these nice little quotes that we can put on greeting cards, and, and we forget, like, the next part that says, and, you know, dash the children about the rocks. We, we, we keep that part out, but, or these, these stories that inspire us, and, and, and that we find useful, um, but it's not much more than that, or we don't know how to make sense of it. But clearly the Old Testament is important, and if you're, you're already in Matthew, just flip to Matthew chapter 1. This is, think about Matthew chapter 1, it is the beginning of the New Testament, and all of, all of the early church canon has, the, the arrangement of the books has Matthew at the very beginning. And what's the very first verse say? Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Matthew starts the New Testament steeped in the Old Testament. I won't spoil the genealogy. Pastor Dick will be preaching on that for Christmas. But he covers Abraham, David, and the exile. And then Matthew says, by the way, Jesus fulfills all of these things. All of it is looking to him. And, and I just took, I was listening to audio lectures of a gospel class from Reformed Theological Seminary, and, and, and it's impressed on me how the other gospels also weave in the Old Testament. Mark starts with Isaiah, the voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Luke has the story of the priests and the genealogy, and of course John 1, 1, in the beginning, was the word. He takes you right back to Genesis and says, by the way, Jesus was there. And, and, and we'll see tonight, this is also the exact way that Jesus looks at Scripture. Now, we're, we're in the middle of Jonah, and Lord willing, next year, beginning of next year, I will be starting Leviticus. We'll be preaching through Leviticus. And so I thought this was a good time to say, okay, how do we understand the Old Testament? These are your Scriptures, but how do you apply them? How do you feed your soul? How do they feed your soul? Paul says in Romans 15:4, whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of Scripture we might have hope. Now there's an obvious interpretation and application uh, for the Old Testament and Jonah, which is there's a continuity between the Old Testament and the New, that the same God who hurled the storm and appointed the first the fish and shows tremendous patience to Jonah is the God that we worship today. But you say, is there something more than that? Is there, is there something greater that ties these, these two halves together in a stronger way? And here's where we're going tonight. The idea is that the Old Testament is yours because it yearns for Jesus. The Old Testament is yours because it yearns for Jesus. Old Testament scriptures are are beautiful, they are inspired, and yet wherever you go, they are incomplete. They are screaming for something to fulfill them. They are yearning for something more. You could go throughout all the Old Testament. I think think maybe one of the the largest examples is Moses. By God's grace, he, he, he brings Israel out of the Promised Land, and then he's left looking in, and he can't go in. He's, he's, he's waiting for that fulfillment. He's yearning for it. And, and, and all of the Old Testament is, is incomplete. And why is that? Because it's waiting for the Messiah. And because you belong to the Messiah, the Old Testament is yours. It's longing for Jesus. And so if we love God and all of his word, we need to go to the Old Testament and say, okay, how is this ours? And maybe after this sermon, you can say, what does this tell me about Jesus? So it's a very simple outline where I, I want us to just look at a couple examples. First, Jesus teaching the Old Testament, and then how the, old, the apostles apply the Old Testament, and then the ways for us to use it. So first, what did Jesus think about himself in the Old Testament? And let's just remember who he is. He is the one who is risen from the dead by the power of God, the one who Hebrews says is qualified for the high priesthood, by the virtue of an indestructible life? I think we should listen to what the Son of God in the flesh says and learn from him as he teaches about what the Old Testament says to him. So I'm going to have us turn to what I call the the Westminster Passage. When when I was at seminary for the first, my first semester, it drove me crazy. Somehow, every single professor in all of my classes managed to weave this passage in, including the counseling course. Like, how is this possible? Um, Brian, if he's not already there, probably knows. It's, uh, it's, it's Luke 24, so everyone turn with me to Luke 24, and we'll be looking at the second part of the chapter. Uh, this is 
talks about Jesus' resurrection and then the road to Emmaus, where there's the two disciples. They're, they're discussing what has happened. In Luke 24, uh, verse 17, Jesus comes to them and he says to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And, and they're downcast and depressed and they, they relay the whole, um, the whole events of his crucifixion. They said, have you, have you had your head stuck in the sand for the last week? This is what's going on. And how does Jesus respond to them? This is really important. Verse 25, he says to them, O foolish ones, and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so, first of all, he he, he, he sets up the structure. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things? He's saying there was already an expectation set. There was already something, a plan in motion that the Messiah would have to suffer this way. And then, beginning with Moses and the prophets. Now, that a note there, one of the shorthands of, of talking about the Hebrew Old Testament, the Old Testament, would be the Law of Moses. That would be the Pentateuch. And then the prophets, which in that time would have been what they considered the former prophets, which we would say are judges to kings, the narrative books, and then what we would call the minor and the major prophets. And then the writings, which would have been Psalms, Chronicles, a few other books. And so Jesus is saying, beginning with, with Moses and the prophets, that's two-thirds of the scripture, he interprets, he gets the significance of the things concerning himself. So there, we should expect to find things about Jesus in the Old Testament. And then he appears to all of his disciples shortly after. Verse 44, after those two go and to kind of give them a heads up. And Jesus says to all the disciples in verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, so there's all the Old Testament now, must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And so here again he's talking about the whole entirety and now he's saying it, it's actually in the Old Testament that it's, it's telling us the Messiah would have to suffer on the third day and rise from the dead. And he's saying the whole Old Testament is about me and you should be expecting to find me in it. Not just in some messianic prophecy passages, but in the whole of the Old Testament. And so now let's look and see, let's turn back to Matthew 12, that passage that we were looking at originally with Jonah, and see how Jesus talks about himself in, in the New Testament. So Jesus talks about Jonah um, two times in Matthew, and then there's a parallel passage in Jonah, which is parallel to what, what we read here. So now what is Jesus doing? Well, he's comparing himself. They ask for a sign, and he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but, but no sign will be given except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. This is verse 39. And then he goes again and gives the comparison. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, and also he preached repentance. There's the two points of comparison. It's brought out differently in the different passages. So, so will I be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, and I'm preaching repentance? Now, interestingly enough, he calls this a sign of Jonah. It's a sign. Their experiences are tightly and closely connected. Now, 
I think you all know the story of Jonah. You might object, well, wait a minute. Um, If I go back to Jonah, it's a story. There's no prophecy talking about the Messiah. How can Jesus connect this to himself? Well, Jesus, remember, went back and said it's not it's not just individual obvious prophecies, but it's it's the law, the prophets and the Psalms. And we'll see a little bit. It can be a person, a thing or a ceremony or a law. All those can in their way, own way report point to Jesus. And, and Jesus says, what does he, Jesus say this this scripture talks about what he said in Luke, his death and his resurrection, the key theme of the New Testament. So Jesus makes this comparison and analogy, but he goes further still. If you were to expand your study of chapter 12, he makes a series of comparisons that I am greater than. So in the beginning, he says, I am greater than the temple. I tell you, someone greater than the temple is here. Uh, Verse six, he says he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Um, By implication of that temple story, he's greater than David. Then when we get to the passage we had, he's greater than Jonah. He's greater than Solomon. What Jesus is saying is it's not just that you know, you can draw some connections. I am greater. I am the fulfillment of all of these characters in the Old Testament. He's teaching us how the Old Testament relates to him and how. And Jesus says they find their fulfillment in me. Well, let's look at two ways then that the apostles writing under the inspiration of Scripture uh, spirit use the Old Testament scripture. And we're going to stay in Matthew for the first one. Go ahead and flip to uh, Matthew chapter 2. And Matthew is a very uh, Jewish gospel. He's writing to Jews. He's convincing them from the Old Testament. He's making arguments on their own terms that he thinks they would find convincing. The Spirit opens their eyes. And he has a lot of these fulfillment passages. This was to fulfill, or this has fulfilled, this or that. And so Matthew says in, in chapter 2, verse 13, this is, This is the story of Jesus. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I have called my son. Now, this is kind of like the classic head-scratcher prophecy. Um, What do you make of this? If you go back to Hosea 1.1, this is what Matthew is quoting. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, I mean, it's it's a beautiful passage about the Lord pursuing Israel uh, through discipline and ultimately his grace will overcome their stubbornness. But uh, no one in there, nowhere in there is the mention of Messiah in Hosea 11.1. So so what is Matthew doing? And um, I'll just give you what I think is a very brief overview. Um, Probably my professors are rolling in their graves because you could, you know, you could write papers on this. But I think it's actually very simple at the higher level, at the basic level. In, in, without saying we understand this passage exclusively, Matthew is showing that Jesus fulfills and connects to Israel's story. Uh, Jesus is God's son. In fact, very explicitly, shortly after, in his baptism, The Holy Spirit will come down and the Father will say, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. Israel was God's son. 
And, and so what he's doing is showing that Jesus is fulfilling Israel's story. He's the fulfillment of, of what they went through. And in many ways, the whole, the gospel of Matthew is the claim that Jesus is the embodiment of, of Israel. From the genealogy to the fulfillment passages, baptized in the Jordan, calling the twelve disciples. You can see this idea that Jesus is the true Israel. He fulfills who Israel was supposed to be. And so when Matthew quotes these passages that talk about Israel, compares them to Jesus and says this is fulfilled, he's saying, once again, Israel was waiting for a resolution. Israel was yearning for a completement. Israel failed to do what it should be. I'm telling you, true Israel's here. Well, let's also look at one passage in Acts. There's a lot of Old Testament quotes in Acts, but let's, let's go to Acts 15. This is the Jerusalem Council. And here they're, they're talking because they have a good problem. These are, it's a mostly Jewish church, and all of a sudden they're having a lot of Gentiles, and they're saying, how do we live at peace with each other? And so let's look at, start at verse 12, and I'll read down to 18. As they're, as they're talking about what the Lord has been doing, And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. I should say there's an argument here. Do we need to require Gentiles to live like Jews now that they're coming in to the church? And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the word of the prophets agree, just as, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will restore its ruins and uh, rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And then James makes the argument that, no, we do not require them to live as Jews now that they are in this new time. And and the striking thing is that James claims he takes a passage. If you go back to Amos and you could you could read it, Amos chapter nine, first there's judgment, which then turns Israel to seek the Lord. And then there's there's this wonderful new kingdom brought brought in, in in this kind of end times. Um, you know, the, the, the hills drip new wine, the, 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 the vats and the grains overflow. And, and then this, this talk about rebuilding David's fallen tent. And, and what James is saying is this passage has already started. Um, the Jews, the, the Gentiles are here. And, and because of that, we can see through Messiah Jesus, he's rebuilt David's temple or his, his tent. And so what that means is he says, you know, as the words the prophets agree, just as is written, he says, this is now, people. This is now. Now, you could argue that there's a greater fulfillment later on in the new heavens and the new earth. But he's taking Old Testament passages that seem very completely at the end times. Um, our, our, our brothers and sisters who are dispensationalists would probably say this is the millennium. Um, you know, and, and saying, this has started now. And there's no way to get around that. This, he's saying, this has started today. And so he's saying the Old Testament prophecies of this new age are filled at least in part because Jesus has come and what he's done is Messiah. Messiah has rebuilt David's temple, his tent, and here we are. So how do we interpret then the Old Testament scripture in light of how the apostles and Jesus teach? 
And the word that we use is typology. So, so what is that? Well, it's, it's biblical truth. Often we're talking about Old Testament truth that finds its fulfillment in Jesus. A typology simply means the study of types. It comes from the Greek word tupos, which means a, an imprint or a mark. And we believe that God has ordained all of history and certain events. People, it's almost like they leave a mark in history that, that are eventually repeated and sometimes um, almost gain ground larger until they're fulfilled in Jesus as, as they go through redemptive history. And so this is a much broader view to the Old Testament connection of Jesus than it's often thought. Um, drawing from Dr. James Kruger and his, his seminary notes here, but often we say, well, how does the Old Testament talk about the new? We'd say, well, you know, it predicts, it predicts Jesus into the new. But, it, but if that's all it does, what does that limit us to? Well, you know, there's the passages in Isaiah 7, 9, 11, um, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Um, you might say some of the Psalms might be some Messianic Psalms, but there's a lot of the Old Testament that we're not quite sure what to do with. But what, what he would say, and I think this is much more accurate, is that the Old Testament prefigures Jesus. In many ways, it acts out beforehand and tells beforehand what is to come so that there are these repeating themes of truth that overlap and expound until they are finally fulfilled in Jesus. And when Jesus comes, you say, ah, Okay, now I understand. And so this is how we can say that the law prefigures Jesus. How can a law prefigure Jesus? Well, you think about the Day of Atonement and, 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 and the story arc of the sacrifice, which goes to that. Um, connected with the Day of Atonement is an event. I, Isaiah on Mount Moriah. Anyone who has read Isaiah on Mount Moriah, when, when Abraham says, God shall provide a lamb for the burnt offering, my son, God himself, we know he's talking about Jesus, but how can that be a prediction? It's a story, right? It's, it's, it's a type. It's an event which has a truth which connects to Jesus. Or it could be a person, Joshua, delivering the people going into the promised land. Now, it's important to understand a theological conviction there. We believe that the Son of God is the author of Scripture just as much as he is an actor in history. And so he is active in all ages. He, God, the Father, has planned history in all time that, that repeats and finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And so it would make sense that we would find these repeating themes, especially when Jesus insists that he is the fulfillment of all these Scriptures. So this typology. We, we, we find scriptural truth that's fulfilled in Jesus. Well, the question comes, well, how do you, how do you, um, this is, this comes up all the time, well, how do you do this responsibly? Because um, if you've studied scripture at all and you've studied interpretations, you know that there's some pretty dubious interpretations of the Old Testament, both in past and present. Um, you know, so it's certainly not allegory. Allegory is just simply where you say, this means that. And it might be very convincing. You might even, you might even be able to show ways that it that looks very similar. But if, if it's not connected to a truth or a theme that, that finds itself in Jesus, you, you can't just go back and forth. So, so for instance, I'd mentioned the, the passage in Psalm 137, which says, you know, after lamenting being in exile, the Psalm says, blessed is the one who takes the infant and dashes him against the rocks, right? The infant of our, our, of our enemies. And it's, it's a pretty striking way to end the psalm. And, and St. Saint, uh, and Saint Augustine, who's, who is a, a, a wonderful interpreter and gift of, the, of Scripture to the church, says, well, here's what we do. Um, those infants really weren't the infants of our oppressors. Those infants are the wicked thoughts of your heart. 
and you're supposed to take it and, you know, do battle and, and put your flesh to death. And, and that's a great truth. It's just clearly not what the psalm is saying. There's no way you can connect those two. Um, you can't connect it through Christ. That, that's, that's clearly finding a way to dodge around the text. And so we want to avoid just uh, arbitrary uh, allegory where we just say, if, if, you, if someone says, hey, I had this great novel new inter- interpretation from the Old Testament, it's probably a chance to just, probably a point where you want to stop and say, okay, tell me more, but you probably want to be a little skeptical. Um, and so we do need to be responsible, but we also need to remember that this is, this is a fuller picture than just what we might call the plain meaning of the text. Have you heard that phrase before, the plain meaning of the text? Um, it's, it's intention, well intentioned and it's, it's, it's important, but sometimes what people say is that if the human author could not have understood how the New Testament was interpreting it, then we must be understanding the New Testament wrong. And they want to say we, we are limited by the understanding of the human author in the Old Testament. And, and while we need to understand what was being said back then, sometimes it's also called grammatical historical, and we would never change a reality just to fit an interpretation, we also need to understand that God has a lot more going on. There's a bigger picture than what that person, that author, that prophet, whoever it was, David, or had at that time. We know that God is the divine author of Scripture. He has a huge plan from all of eternity. And we also know that all truth in the Old Testament points to and is fulfilled in Jesus. So we should expect to see that even when he's not explicitly mentioned. And so I think a better understanding of the Old Testament, although we respect that that original author, and it's helpful to say sometimes, put yourself in his shoes. What, what would he be seeing and thinking? Is, okay, what's the whole picture? Sometimes... In seminary, we call this redemptive historical, right? We, we respect the historical context, but we also see it in the whole scope of God's redemptive plan. I think that the mystery novel analogy is helpful here. It does break down, and, and there are some areas that I think are a little more complicated, but on the bigger scale, I think it, uh, the analogy of the mystery novel is, is really helpful here. One of my favorite space sci-fi novellas is is a is a space chase who's done it and and it, it just it just starts off and you're just moving the whole time and the author gives you a couple breaks because you go insane but the, the all the characters are running for their lives there is just chaos all over the place it's a wild romp and you're just always catching your breath and they're just always ahead of it seems like the whole galaxy is chasing them and at the end there's this big reveal and it brings it to a surprisingly satisfying conclusion and the reason it's satisfying, and because all of a sudden the chaos makes sense. Because what you didn't realize is that the author, he's just giving you this tiny little perspective of the people who are running around and being chased. But he pulls back the curtains and shows you what's been happening behind the scenes. Now, all these things were there all along. It's just that you didn't know the significance of it until the end. And in fact, I think the book is good enough. It's not a masterpiece, but I like it. I read it every once in a while. Sometimes I'll just read a section and, and all of a sudden I'll see like these clues and these indicators that the, the author dropped that you wouldn't get on the first spot time. But the second or third time you're like, oh yeah, okay. I see how that works. Pretty cool. Yeah. Now, now what if I gave you the book and I didn't give you the big picture and I said, okay, hey, read a chapter. You'd miss those clues. 
you wouldn't know their full and final significance. You would say that at best you would have an incomplete interpretation until you knew the end. And that's actually what we have when we understand that the whole mind of Scripture now has been revealed in God, and it helps us to understand. Um, so, you know, you can hand the, the, the book of Amos to an atheist, and he'll say, you know, it never tells you anything about Jesus. But that's because he doesn't have the proper commitment to the proper context of who Jesus is. He doesn't, he doesn't understand that it's part, or refuses to accept, it's part of God's entire revelation. So what does this look like as we might apply this? I'll just give you two quick applications as, as, we, as we climb down, wind down here. The first, let's choose a very common uh, Bible passage. You've probably heard this and probably heard this application as well. I won't, won't even have to turn there. First uh, Samuel 17, David and Goliath. So if you, if you hear, you know, a, a contemporary Bible preacher, what's, what's the application? Well, you know, go out there and slay your giants. Who are the giants in your life that you need to take down? Right? Well, what's the, what's the theme of the truth? Well, the theme of the truth is that David is God's anointed. Right? He's, he's part of the line of God's fulfillment. Way back in Genesis 2, 3, you can, you can fill the, you can trace the hops. Right? The, the promise, the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. And here's an instance of the seed of the woman, the anointed Messiah, crushing God's enemy, which of course will find its fulfillment in Jesus. And so Jesus is the one who David is looking forward to, not, not we, the ones that have to go and slay our giants. If anything, we're the Israelites following in Jesus' victory, and now we're in mop-up by the Spirit. And it's only Paul who says, you know, because of Jesus, the God, will, Jesus will soon crush Satan under your feet. So we see that, okay, David goes to Jesus, who fulfills, um, and then we don't have this burden of having to slay the giant. No, we follow our Savior. The second one is, um, turn, turn to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, is, there's, there's, there's a, the first four verses have this, this, wonderful posi- uh, this wonderful passage of what's going on in the future at some point. So Isaiah chapter 2, I'll read the first three verses. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, to my, to my knowledge, I don't think there is an example of a New Testament book directly interpreting this passage. But if we're going to follow the apostles, how, how should we interpret this and we have many well-meaning brothers and sisters, maybe of a, of a dispensational or um, belief that would say, hey, there's, there's the church and there's Israel. This applies to Israel and not to the church. Um, so there's going to be a time when the church is going to be done and we're going to be raptured up and, and Israel will come back. And, 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 and this, is, this is going to be that time in the future. Um, but we've seen that Matthew says, well, who's true Israel? Well, true Israel is Jesus. By the way, who's, who's the temple? The temple is Jesus. And 
And what did we see already quoted in Acts 15? Well, David's house has been rebuilt and, and the Gentiles are flowing in. And so we see the Gentiles flowing into Jerusalem. It's, it's, doesn't this sound like the people of the Gentiles coming to Jesus, coming to Christ, being brought into the church? Does this mean that there might be a fuller and more definitive interpretation in the future? That's possible. But I don't see how you get around that. If Jesus is Israel and, and then those who are coming in, this, is, this would be the interpretation. And I think that's what you see in Acts going out. And I think, for me at least, that's a lot more encouraging than it to be some far future, yet-to-be-unfulfilled prophecy. Well, the idea tonight is that the Old Testament is yours because it yearns for Jesus. It's, it's waiting to be completed. And as, as we look at this, you need to have a spirit of humility that there is a lot that we don't know. And also to acknowledge that there are high points and there are low valleys. You know, Genesis 22, Isaiah going to Mount Moriah, it's pretty easy to see where that's going. There's other times where you read that text and say, I, I, that might that'd be, that'd be a question in heaven. I, I'm, I'll just be honest. Um, and so, so we need to be guided by the Spirit. We need to be humble. Look at the interpretation of our church, both past and present. But also we can rejoice that the Old Testament is yours now. These realities of atonement and life in the land, these are not just future concepts, either for Israel or, or the new heavens, the new earth, depending on how you interpret they, it's It's not a, you know, completely future. One of the things I say to my kids, and I kind of hate it, but I say, when I get better, you know, Daddy, can we do this? When I get better, when I get better. And I mean, there's some truth to that. They're just limited right now. Well, you know, God's interpretation, it is not limited. These promises are active now. They're starting now. They may be fuller in the future, but they are present now. And that means that you can read the Old Testament and rejoice both in the future that's to come by faith, but also what is yours, you claim it right now. And you can rejoice in your Savior who is fully the center of everything of God's plan and he is worthy of your worship. You know, Ephesians, Paul gets even bigger. He goes beyond scripture and he says, Jesus is a fulfillment for the plan of the fullness of time. You ignite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. He just, he just throws it all in there. That is your Savior. And so the Old Testament is yours because it yearns for Jesus. So please pray with me. Father, we confess there, there are many things that we will not know and fully understand this side of heaven. But you have given us much. You have given us the teaching of Jesus and his apostles. And we know that your scripture from the old times is valuable for us in the new. And so we ask that we would go hungry, looking, be fed by your spirit as we see Jesus and we taste and see that he is good. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.